Hello, it's Matt and Becky here from Local Zero. Just a quick note to say before the episode starts that from April 2024, Local Zero will be looking for some new funding to keep it going. We never imagined when we started three years ago that we'd rack up tens of thousands of listens across 130 countries and with a website hosting over 80 episodes. We've also met and worked with some incredible people, including Chris Stark, Hannah Ritchie, Jim Ski, Hugo Tacom, and so many more. And we've been able to showcase so many amazing local climate initiatives from all over the UK and far beyond. But sadly, keeping the pod going costs money. If you or your organisation would like to partner up with the pod as we move into an exciting new chapter, then do reach out to us. You can contact us via our email, localzeropod at gmail.com. That's localzeropod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can contact us on X, formerly Twitter, at localzeropod, or on LinkedIn, direct to Matt Hannon or Rebecca Ford. Finally, to help us in our quest to secure funding, we want to hear positive stories from listeners about how the pod has influenced your life and your work. We hope to do a very special episode on this too. So please help us continue the fight against climate change and bring local climate action to doorsteps across the world. Thanks for listening. Now back to the pod. Hello and welcome to Local Zero. In today's episode, we're talking about improving the energy efficiency of the UK's housing stock, helping households to lower their energy bills and increase their comfort levels at home. Yes, and this week, Becky and I are actually physically in the same place together at the University of Strathclyde. She's headed up all the way from Cornwall. Um, And today we'll be chatting with professors Lucy Middlemiss and Mark Davis from the University of Leeds. We will be discussing a UK Energy Research Centre project I'm working with them both on about how our social relations, i.e. our relationships with other people and places, influence our decisions around domestic energy retrofit. And this topic is so important because at the moment we're simply not going deep or fast enough on retrofitting our housing stock in order to meet net zero. The question is whether accounting for a householder's social relations might help us to design and promote solutions that unlock a nationwide energy efficiency drive. And we'll also be joined in today's episode by Ruth Bookbinder from the University of Leeds, Julia Menini from the Science Policy Research Unit, or SPRU, at the University of Sussex, and Ian Cairns from the University of Strathclyde. They will be sharing some fresh insights from case studies of the importance of social relations in unlocking energy retrofits. And just a reminder, do find and follow the pod. Search Local Zero wherever you get your podcasts and click subscribe. Do also get in touch with us on Twitter. We are at Local Zero Pod if you want to get involved with the discussions there. So... Becky, you're back in Glasgow. It's yes. sunny. How does it feel? Oh, it's so lovely. I mean, I did arrive yesterday in the horrible drizzle that Glasgow is so well known for. But today I woke up and it was absolutely beautiful. So I feel like I've brought a little bit of Cornwall with me. You have. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it really is starting to feel very summery out there. And uh, how are things down in Cornwall? I mean, new, new job, new house, new life. How are things? Yeah, really good. Thanks, Matt. I mean, it is just so nice to be back in Glasgow. There 
seeing familiar sights, but I'm not going to lie. I do love living five minutes from the beach and uh, managed to get in for my first wild swim of the year oh, wow. over the weekend. So Lovely. Brilliant. Yes, uh, the wild swimming in the Clyde is pretty wild, so yeah, I wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't recommend. Um, but no, I mean, obviously, you know, we've, we've lots going on. Um, we're kind of, you know, as we approach summer, I was starting to take stock of the winter. Um, mm. And uh, in my sort of typical fashion, I was trying to understand, you know, how much gas have I actually consumed? What was the damage done? I think many of us will be kind of, you know, yep. taking stock in a similar way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have to admit, I... Um, I came across a pretty unpleasant surprise, Becky, which was um, oh, no. my my gas meter um, had only accounted for a third of my consumption. So oh, my goodness. we can blame the imperial versus metric wars on this, but basically it was measuring it in cubic um, feet, but octopus or it was cubic meters. But in short, I was looking at this going, oh my goodness, I'm about, like I am way, way short. Am I gonna get hammered with a big bill? Um, thankfully, I'm, as I'm sitting here, um, you know, it's been dealt with um, kudos to Octopus for taking responsibility for, for their error and resolving this. But um, it really put into sharp contrast how expensive winter yeah. was and, and how much of an ostrich yeah. I've been about it. To be well, honest. and I wonder if there are people now sitting at home going, oh, I wonder if mine was the other way after seeing the massive bills that they had this winter, just because it has been absolutely savage. And the yeah. fact of the matter is, is that most people are probably not looking at their meters no. and their usage in, in the way that you are. I had a similar experience, actually, um, with my electricity meter. So in December, as part of the big retrofit project that we've been doing at home, I got my Smets 1 smart meter upgraded to yeah. a Smets 2 smart meter. So, so one Smets 1 is kind of kind of the dumb, dumb smart meter. Right, yeah, that's my understanding. <laughs> that okay. is my understanding. I don't know the technical details, but Smets 2 is certainly smarter than Smets 1. And for months mm. now, when I log on to, to look at my energy usage, it just says, you are still in your 14-day cooling off window. Yeah. So that it just hadn't connected. So you know, I really have to question what I've been paying. I mean, I've been paying a direct debit and, and actually managed to put in my usage. And yeah. thankfully, it was not far off. But I but mean, there's two, two of us sitting around the table. We're both having problems with this. Yeah. Big, big fundamental problems. Yeah. As I've said on the pod many times before, I work as chair and trustee of South Seeds. And we have people, a long line of people constantly coming in who haven't been billed yeah. correctly. Yeah. This is basic stuff. You know, really at the end of the day, you know, going, going to net zero is going to be far more complicated than metering you know somebody correctly for their consumption but people are coming in with thousands of pounds of debt they didn't know they had but also could you imagine paying for another service outside of the energy sector where it cost you as much and it was just as poor quality in terms of what you were finding out i mean i think it's just shocking in terms of customer service apart from anything else so but well quite right and i think you know it wasn't actually on the back of this this mishap but i was aware that i needed to cut my gas consumption so i've actually signed up to the energy systems catapult living lab i'm part of their smart thermostat uh, trial a company called tado has provided the uh, the equipment in effect um this is a, a smart thermostat which is meant to adjust for the weather, whether you're in or out the house, but also on each of the radiators, mm. they've taken off the dumb valves and they've yep. put on these smart valves. And you can actually, from my phone, as I have it in front of me, I can tell you the temperature in all of my rooms and tell you the humidity, which I don't really need to know. Yep. Um, but I can actually, con- like, like a conductor with an orchestra. That is amazing. I actually think that's brilliant. So um, as regular listeners of the pod will know, I recently got a heat pump, which mm. has been phenomenal, but it has taken a lot of working and I've, actually manually been twisting those valves in the different rooms to try and make sure that 
the temperature is, is as I want it. And so our thermostat, um, so I just have one. I don't have, you know, multiple different sensors in all the different rooms like you. It used to be on the wall right by the front door yeah. in the coldest part of yeah, the house yeah, yeah. where there wasn't really a radiator anyway. So it just felt absolutely ridiculous. So now we've got one that you can move around and we leave it in our main living room. But of course, I want my bedrooms to be a lot colder. We've almost had to turn the valves off completely to wow. get it working properly. So I think it's brilliant. Yeah, cooking the, the, sleep. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. I mean, you know, this is, again, this is meant to be relatively straightforward stuff in terms of you know, getting the, the, the temperature, but it's been a real surprise to me how yeah. complicated it's been and, and how actually um, how informed you need those installers mm. to be because the kind of questions that were coming out during this um, really required that person to have done many hundreds of installs before yeah. and be not just an electrician, which is important, but to understand the thermal dynamics, to understand yeah. you know comfort levels, which we're constantly talking about. Show. Um, but I'm so jealous of your heat pump. That's yeah. that's the next. Well, I'm thing. jealous. I'm jealous of your multi-room <laughs> monitoring. I mean, but how how difficult? What is, was it to actually get it installed? Was it quite a complex process? No, it took um, best part of an hour, really. Wow. Yeah, it was quick. Surprisingly quick. But, <laughs> it's better than my heat pump. It took yeah. six days. <laughs> but anyway, so we'll, one day we'll get into the dumb side yeah. of smart meters and smart thermostats because a whole lot of stuff came out about whether or not it's modulating the boiler. We're getting into really geeky territory. But for those who are looking at their energy bills thinking, how do I lower them? Actually, these topics, these topics matter. Let's go on to much bigger issues mm. at hand. So, um, open the news today, Guardian was leading on a news story about methane leaks, or venting, as they often yep. call it, rather than flaring, which is where you burn the gas, yep. you often see on oil, uh, oil rigs. But the methane leaks in Turkmenistan, which are the Shocking, equivalent, uh, annually, the equivalent of the UK's carbon emissions. Now, Becky, how, when I spoke about this, how did it make you feel? Did it make you feel empowered? Uh, did it give you agency to make a difference to the climate change? Or, or it made me feel so frustrated at how much I try and how little that means in comparison to this. But do you know what, Matt? It also reminded me of a study that I've seen previously which looked at depression in in adults and found that the only sort of common factor underlying that was whether people listened or read the news or not so you know it doesn't surprise me that we're that we're seeing this and I'm in the news and I'm feeling very uh very uh disempowered by it all yeah and as I said it's actually it's more than the UK's emissions not just equivalent it's actually a little bit more mm. and you look at this and you think, well, and, you know, often I get annoyed with people who say, oh, well, you know, what's happening in China or the US or India? Yeah. You know, we're, we're just a pinprick. And I, I'm often, you know, arguing for the, no, it all matters. It yeah. all, it all, and it does. It's all cumulative. Now, what I would say, there is a little good news story yeah. here potentially, is that we've only found out about these leaks because of satellite technology. Okay, so that's impressive. Only in the last couple of years. Yeah. So we only now know the scale of the problem. Yeah. But also, this is a this is an issue that can be dealt with by basically mm. a singular actor. Yeah. Uh, if you look at the UK's carbon emissions as a total, you know, we talk even on uh, we're about to talk on this show mm. now about uh, the complications around getting a household to, yeah. you know, there is a good news story here because methane is the, the yeah. most pernicious of uh, you know of common greenhouse gases so anyway we've discovered it we can do something about it and the other thing that i also want to sort of just step back on is you know 
at, a, at an individual level, it's not just about the energy balances and the carbon dioxide. I certainly, it was, you know, back of my mind, the kind of value side of things when I went for installing a heat pump and making changes to my home. But it certainly wasn't the thing that was front of mind driving the decision. There are so many kind of other reasons yeah. Like we were talking about warmth in the home, um, you know, lowering pollution in our cities, yeah. better, cleaner air to but, breathe. But so. it is a factor and, it is and a factor. it's an important one. Now, and I think that's a useful segue now into this discussion around social relations and the reasons why people do or do not make uh, positive choices around a, a domestic energy retrofit. Um, you know, it's all these connections between place, people, um, whether it's workplace, home, life, all of these these all feed in to make a decision around that kitchen table. So I think we want to bring the guests in. Absolutely. I'm Professor Mark Davis, uh, Professor of Economic Sociology at the University of Leeds. I'm Lucy Middlemiss, and I'm Professor of Environment and Society at the University of Leeds. Welcome both of you, Mark, Lucy, um, it's a pleasure to have you on. We've been colleagues for a little while and I've been promising to have you on and host you on this pod and it's been long overdue, so I'm really thrilled you're here. Um, today we're talking about the social relations of retrofit and before we get stuck into exactly kind of what that means, if we can just maybe lay out the problem or at least the challenge facing us with regards to energy retrofit with a focus on domestic properties. So. What is the situation today regarding retrofit and how bad is it? I wonder maybe, Lucy, if we could begin with you. Um, I know you've been doing a lot of work around fuel poverty and obviously this, this year has been particularly pernicious for millions of households. So how, how bad is it? How, how, um, how slow is progress being made? Well, I guess we, we live in a country in which the, the housing stock is relatively old. It's also not been maintained in a way that might result in uh, um, it being more energy efficient. <laughs> and so if you look at the efficiency of the housing stock in the UK versus the housing stock in Denmark, let's say, when we all know that, that Denmark is quite a, an efficient place, it's it's half as efficient. And what that means is, is effectively, we just, um, we're living in leaky buildings and leaky building, whether we live in private sector, the, the um, social rented or private rented sector, we're all facing this, this heat loss effectively mm. that, that means that we can't keep our buildings as, as, as warm as we would like. And this winter we've had um, re- ridiculously high energy bills. And as a result, we'll have seen a lot more people struggling with, with keeping warm enough just because it's so expensive to heat. So we have these, this sort of uh, heat escaping, but also you know the inputs um, at, in terms of the amount of heat that we can afford to buy um, is, is reducing as well. And the, these, co- the, these things cause real, really big problems not just for the the fuel poor, also kind of right the way up the the yeah. income scale, fair, a fair bit up the income scale, because people just can't afford to keep adequately warm. Absolutely, Mark. Anything to add there, just in terms of how bad things are and how slow progress currently is? Yeah, I think um, I think the significance, in, particularly in terms of net zero ambitions, is is also worth kind of bearing in mind in, in that kind of policy sense. So, we know from a twenty twenty study by Bayes that residential buildings account for approximately 25% of total energy use uh, in the UK. And one of the the relatively, you know, sobering uh, facts that come out of a a study by the Environmental Audit Committee on the back of that is that 80% of the buildings that 
will exist in 2050 um, are here now, right? Mm -hmm. So often in, in conversations about energy efficiency, we look to new builds and we look to kind of engineering out some of these problems in, in modern methods of construction and, and various other, um, you know, kind of new building formats. But actually, given the age and the, the state of the housing stock in the UK, and as I say, because 80% of it will still be here in 2050, yeah. the, the kind of urgency of retrofitting that housing stock is is really dramatic. And at the moment, energy policy and, and a whole suite of kind of national policy frameworks are falling really short of finding the right mix of incentives and enablers to first get that message into households, but also then, um, you know, kind of smoothing the process through which households can begin to engage with, right, you know, you've sold me on the climate message, you've sold me on the, the need for net zero, how do you want me to do that? And that goes right across different tenure types um, for different buildings. It goes right across the income spectrum, as, as Lucy was saying there, around the you know the fuel pole right up to the able to pay. So, so that there's a real kind of research problem that has to be addressed given the state we're in with our housing stock in in the UK. I mean, I'm so glad that you brought up the policy perspective. And um, I, was, I was saying to Matt earlier, actually, how I'm still reeling, you know, weeks after the uh, the energy security strategy was released, just the lack of focus on the demand side, the lack of focus of what we actually need to do to make our, our building stock, our homes, our businesses more efficient. And it just, to me, seems like a no-brainer in that it can deliver so many benefits. So, you know, really glad that you've, you've brought that up. And, and certainly, I think that aligns with what we've seen right so we, you, we saw a lot more action around energy efficiency maybe five to ten years ago than we're seeing today so maybe can you just help shine a light on why why we're not seeing that retrofitting at the pace that we need right why is it why is it dropped off particularly for and you mentioned able to pay so those people perhaps who own their homes and are able to afford this why are we not seeing more action with that I mean Mark maybe you can kick us off with that yeah, it's a really it's a really interesting question. It's actually one of the main starting points for the whole person whole place project that um, you know we we got funded through the UK Energy Research Centre, which was this kind of observation that you you know you would often think looking narrowly at energy policy that the primary barrier to the delivery of retrofit at scale is is financial, right? That the the big barrier here is around money. So in 2020, the UK's Treasury announced a suite of um, kind of post-COVID-19 economic recovery measures that were climate-facing, and that included a £2 billion package aimed at uh, a domestic green recovery via a number of um, frameworks, including the Green Homes Grant, um, which was to the tune of £2 billion, of investment and a further 100 million via the clean homes, uh, sorry, clean heat grant. So taken together, those measures represented less than 1% of what was calculated as the 250 billion that was going to be needed for residential retrofit in the UK, right? So a real pebble in the ocean in terms of financial support. And so you might think, well, OK, it's clearly finance that's the barrier. But one of the other things we did right at the start of the project was an initial scoping kind of study. And we found out that actually in the first three months of lockdown in the UK, homes spent £55 billion on cosmetic or aesthetic renovations to 
their homes um, during that kind of first period. So an average of sort of 4,000 per home. And it quickly became apparent that actually finance, particularly for that bracket that we think of as the able to pay, was not the primary barrier to retrofit being undertaken. People were perfectly happy to spend money, whether that was borrowed or whether it was through savings or, or you know, inheritance money, those kind of categories. Um, and they were prepared to go through the, the relatively um, painful structural intervention in the home and, and all the disruption that we know that causes for people. And yet energy efficiency was just not part of the conversation at any stage. They weren't being prompted to do that on the trade side. But, you know, there's a clear lack of incentives for trades um, on the supply side of this to get involved in, in energy efficiency. But we really took as a starting point for our project exactly that question of, well, if, if the finance is there from the point of view of people are willing to spend money cosmetically on the home, how do we begin to understand some of the barriers to undertaking energy efficiency measures in that space? And I think, you know, this is where Lucy and I have been really, um, you know, really kind of leading this this project to look at that question. So I'm going to come to Lucy now. So I, and also just an observation is when we started this project, I said we, because I say I'm working with you both on this, finance was cheap and energy was cheap, or relatively cheap, okay, relative to today. Now energy is very expensive and finance is more expensive. So maybe we can we can circle back to this at the end. But but Lucy, I just wanted you to to reflect on um, you know money. Admittedly, maybe not enough money has been spent in this space to um, to really drive energy efficiency forward. But I think the starting point of the project was actually we're spending money often in the wrong way, and we're taking quite an economically rational approach to householders' decision making. And this project, at its heart, takes a social relational approach where it's about people's relationship with place and other people whether it's their family whether it's their workplace i just wanted you maybe just to frame really what what an economically rational approach means and why maybe it's 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 doomed to fail and and, and this what this social relational approach means and what it, what it offers yeah that that's exactly where we kind of came into the project and and maybe to, to pick up on on what mark was saying finance is not the primary barrier but we really have this massive tendency to see this whole problem in terms of money. So the way we look at it is, um, just to give an example, we would typically talk about the payback period of a, an investment in retrofit. So, you know, you you um, insulate your house. How long does it take for you to get the money back from what you what you spent on, let's say, solid wall insulation? That that whole way of thinking or way of conceptualizing this assumes that people are acting rationally in spending that money. It assumes that the the reason they're doing that solid wall insulation is to to make money back on their energy bills, and actually that that assumption is is really flawed. It kind of narrows down the the whole discussion about retrofit into person and how they spend their money and <laughs> um, actually that you know we, we're not we're not talking about that because why would you uh, insulate your solid wall insulate your house why would you do that it might be because the outside of the house needed rendering and you you heard this is a good way of making it look nice it might be because you, you you're cold in your house and you want to feel more cozy you want to make it a more cozy environment it might it might be because your neighbor's done it <laughs> and, you, and you want you know you, you're you're looking next door and thinking oh that looks nice and talking to your neighbor and talking about how they do it and, and following their lead. So what we're doing really with, the, with thinking about this is stepping back from that very narrow focus on 
a person and how they spend their money and you know what the things like what the payback period are and we're we're opening out so what we're opening out we're opening we're opening questions about who that person is and um who they who they have contact with and and what other people around them are doing what you know who do they live with even you know who lives in this house and what you know what does that mean about the way that the house is used and the and then the objectives that they have in terms of you know what 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 they might want to what money they might want to spend on that house and we also want we also want to know where they are and where they are really matters because we um you know when when you live in a particular area the likelihood is that the the housing stock around you is is quite similar so you know i I live in a a part of the world where we have a lot of stone terraces Uh, we have some um uh, 1920s built uh, um, uh, semi-detached housing you know we have uh, these these particular types of housing that in my area that will be very different to where you live Matt in in, in Glasgow where you know tenement form of building um, and they need different kind of treatment but then then the other the other question about where is is for instance what what do you have around you as a sort of supportive set of institutions that can really help in terms of the way you're doing the the work so you know do you have a, a local NGO that can help you advise you on retrofit what's your local council like how much do they know about this and then the last thing you know what money have they got what so, kind of money have they got and or what kind of money do they do they want to spend on this kind of thing and how are they spending it and maybe mark's better place to to talk about the, the sort of nature of money yeah. and how it's used I, in retrofit i tried to offer a terrible analogy the other day after a couple of glasses of wine something <laughs> about this project which was essentially we think of an Englishman or Englishman's, you know, house as their or home as their castle, but actually the the approach to retrofit is that there's a big moat around that, and none of these are connected. But our project's trying to lower down the drawbridge and connect them. It's terrible. It's but it helps me. It's just me a snapshot me. into like the way your brain thinks. That's phenomenal. This is why I don't write the policy briefs. Thank you. Oh, but I. I I think this is really fascinating. And what I'm hearing from you, Lucy, is like there's lots of reasons why people might do something. And it's not because we're sat there working out the kind of financial gain, but actually it's far more about our lives and our livelihoods. And um, and that context is is critically important to all of this because we're not just these little actors, as you say, Matt, within our castles, surrounded by a moat, but incredibly influenced by what's going on around us. Um, so I guess this kind of talks to why why we might need to be taking this perspective. But I'm just wondering, and, and maybe Mark, you can help us here, just shine some light on, on some of the kind of additional insights. That, so by taking this broader perspective, how is this how is this helping you understand what needs to be done to, to support ho- householders, encourage householders to actually engage in retrofit projects? Yeah, well, I mean, that the point that Lucy makes there about the kind of different relations around money is certainly one of those additional insights. So... We've heard right across the data that we've been gathering in the projects in, in, in different contexts. So we should probably say that we've got three case study sites. We've got Glasgow, Leeds and Brighton. Uh, in Glasgow, we've been looking at multiple occupancy buildings. So there's clearly a really interesting relational dynamic there where it's more than one household making a decision on what happens to the fabric of a building. In Leeds, we've got mortgaged owner-occupiers, so there is more decision-making capacity, but a lot of negotiation within households around 
how money is allocated um, and what kind of um, structural intervention is, is done. Pressure from uh, from children who've maybe been involved in school strikes or uh, Extinction Rebellion or certainly become very, very climate sensitive and the pressure they're putting on parents to think about the, the impact on their home. And then down in, in Brighton, working with um, with colleagues at Sprue, um, looking at the relationships between really sort of students and landlords, but really the kind of, you know, the private rental sector. Because what, what those different tenure types reveal is that, you know, as well as simplifying the financial conversation here, that it's individuals making decisions about home driven by optimal financial return, there's often a willingness to position households as somewhat universal, that all homes are the same and all homeowners are going to make similar decisions. Well, we know quite clearly that that's not the case. And the incentives for people who who are lucky enough to have a mortgage to own their own home is very different to trying to persuade a landlord with a a suite of rental properties that actually they need to be looking at the energy efficiency of their portfolio as well. So, So that's one. And I think the you know, the other side of that around money is we've heard from different households in our case studies that, you know, some households are very, very debt averse. They don't want to borrow to take this money. There's a there's a real willingness to think about using inheritance money for one-off kind of big interventions in the home. And that's really fascinating from a social relations perspective, because what it reveals is that that money is arriving into the into the home. Um, with a, a set of values around it um, linked to a kind of caring relationship, right? This is often from a, a parent who's had a long-term caring relationship with with a daughter or a son. That money arrives into the household with that narrative around it. And so spending it in a way that continues that caring relationship by improving the comfort, convenience, the you know kind of well-being of family members in the home makes a lot of sense to people versus the idea of borrowing you know, extensively um, and getting into debt to kind of do this because someone has been motivated by, um, you know, kind of relatively arbitrary and distant climate change objective in 2050. So what the relational social relations approach gives us is a real grounding of a lot of these uh, initiatives and interventions that need to happen really into the day-to-day conversations and relationships that people have in their daily lives where are they going to get the money from to finance uh, the work and and what are the narratives and values around different forms of money and how that's navigated in the household but also where do they turn to for advice and guidance and as lucy mentioned doing this because a neighbor's done it is really um really powerful i actually ran a version of a workshop that we're going to be using this friday with my students last week um and Suddenly they were telling me that people in their street, five people came and spoke to their dad who put an EV charging point in and wanted to know, how does it work? How much did it cost? Is it saving money? What was the disruption like? You know, all of these kind of conversations that happen beyond the purview of energy policy are actually really vital in persuading people to make that decision to go and do it. And it's rarely about a rational economic decision. It's much more through these kind of relational dynamics. I couldn't agree more. So, and I know... That both of you are uh, being asked by various different quarters about the policy implications of this. Uh, we won't name parties particularly here because I think uh, all of them will be writing their manifestos. But Lucy, to taking what Mark has said there, what what would be maybe a couple of recommendations on the back of what we're learning from this project that prospective uh, governments or, or existing governments might look at and say, right, this is how I take 
a social relational approach to retrofit forward and package it? I'm not asking for a specific policy, but it's almost like an approach to this. What would be your starter for 10? I suppose the first thing is let's put aside that very narrow focus like stop thinking about people and payback period (laughs) people as if they only think about payback period and then the second step is well let's think about who we are trying to to um, influence here so we think that the able to pay can afford to do some of this themselves where are they within let's say leads the leads area and who are they and how um, can we help them to make those choices into the future? That's kind of where we're at. We do need to think about this a bit more deeply. And we're, we're hoping to, to follow up our research project with with, with a, another one to kind of develop these ideas a little bit. But I think we can start already to say, well, you know, we know certain types of people are more likely to apply for energy grants. We know that certain types of people are more likely to, to be first movers in, in this process of, for instance, um, uh, fitting uh, heat pumps in their home, putting solid wall insulation around their homes, this kind of thing. What can we learn about them in terms of how to to change the way we address policy? Well, it's it's about not thinking narrowly in terms of payback period, but but trying to to understand how those context factors affect the way that 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 they they make those decisions. I love that. And does that mean that we need to really be looking at a much stronger relationship? between national and local, because from everything you've said, and particularly around how important places, I mean, local authorities, local councils know their areas the best. They know where those people are. They have an understanding. Is this something we really need to see much more kind of devolution, I guess, into local policymaking? Definitely. Local authorities also understand their housing stock. Very often, local authorities own a lot of housing stock in their area, and they tend to own all forms of housing stock. So, I mean, in Leeds, where I am, the the council owns some back-to-back terraces, which are a very distinctive type of building to Leeds. They also own tower blocks. They also own uh, semis. You know, they they own all these different types of tenure, and so they really understand the sorts of challenges that different people face. They understand the people, they understand the housing type, and they understand the different places within their their authority and as a result they're they're a really key actor i would say in 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 retrofit and mark anything to add there just on the kind of policy recommendations or how you sort of nudge and prod any um incoming government in terms of the direction that they ought to take to to ensure that we are retrofitting at the pace and depth that's required um, and unlocking homes that maybe haven't thought about this using a social relational approach yeah i think um i mean i completely agree on the point about local authorities. I mean, my wider work's been looking at at how we kind of bolster income streams into local authorities for net zero infrastructure projects for a little while now. And I think, you know, Lucy's right in terms of the the oversight that councils have in terms of their, you know, their housing stock, also the the other buildings that they own. So we need to also look at commercial buildings um, and the energy performance of of commercial buildings as well right across the kind of council estate but the other thing i would say that local authorities and that wider kind of devolution narrative that we're getting from from many sides as i playfully dance around your invitation to think about an incoming government um but the the sense in which um there is a role for local authorities also specifically in that relational dimension you know local authorities are real anchor points for all sorts of different relationships that exist right through, you know, procurement for, for net zero infrastructure work taking place to providing means through which um, people can find out more information uh, about retrofitting their own home. I think there's a real 
advocacy role for local authorities as trusted actors to to really help with the the communication side of this. And also, you know, some of the most successful initiatives we've seen whereby you do get street by street retrofit interventions have been a kind of one-stop shop community-led initiative that the council has had some kind of uh, role in in brokering or in delivering so so right across the spectrum of the things that we could and should do next using this approach the role of local authorities and, and councils is absolutely pivotal to kind of close us out i've got a question for you both perhaps a future visioning or you know fairy godmother type question i'm wondering if you can summarize in in a sentence or so what what we still really need to know more about or do more about. So if somebody was to magic up a million pounds for each of you, what would you do with that? Oh, it's always very nice to think about how you might spend, spend that kind of money. Um, so we, we've, I think we've done a lot of the groundwork in the project that we've done so far. We've done a lot of thinking about um, how uh we we might uh, you know we, who who is this actor this person that thinks about um retrofit and and might might do something about it um but what we it, it's felt a lot like a um a series of case studies that that have taught us a lot but then what would be really nice to take that to the country as a whole and come up with with a sort of more solid um, a set of, of recommendations that actually any local authority could could use mm. um, in order to be able to to um, plan their retrofit relationally rather than rationally. And um, it, it, it's quite a big, that's quite a big objective. But in a way, it's, it's almost like that I think we have to scale up what we've done um, in order to be able to to, to give it back effectively to 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 um particularly local authorities i would say to to, to work on this yeah and, and, and just sorry very quick sort of reflection there there's something there lucy also about the similarities are just as important as the differences between uh, you know local areas or indeed regions that you know it'd be fascinating to understand how things are different in cornwall versus <laughs> northumberland versus east renfrewshire <laughs> versus greater london mm. um so anyway yeah, maybe just to add to that, Matt, that you're absolutely right. And then maybe those links are not being made at the moment because people aren't thinking about it in these terms. So if you if you think about the problem relationally, you start to see, well, oh, we've also got a large population of people who live also on low income. So what are you doing with them, Leeds? Oh, Bradford, well, we're doing this. Do you see what I mean? So those sorts of conversations could be happening better if we were thinking about, about who and where. Mark, if you've got a sentence that summarises what you would do with your £1 million. One of the interesting things about, you know, the conversation we've had and, and the project more broadly is that, you know, energy policy in this space is very much looking at demand. How do we grow demand in terms of people being able to do this? Where are they? What, what incentives do they need? What kind of what is the right relational mix to kind of make these things happen? And Lucy's right. You know, our, our ambition here is to is to scale that right across the UK. But I also, you know, with that kind of investment in a project would be looking for us not to take our eye off the supply side and looking at the kind of, you know, the relational dynamics that exists for, for the trade side and how they often deliver um, the same kind of energy intervention in home, you know, usually a combi boiler or something like that, because they already have an existing network of supply that mean that's the most straightforward and frictionless experience for them. 
So retrofit could and should be a real green skills, green jobs revolution for the country. So where is the investment going to come from in terms of, um, you know, skilling, uh, reskilling the trade side so that if we grow that demand as we need to do, it can actually be met relatively efficiently um, and we don't find further blockages on that side. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Lucy. What a fabulous conversation that was. And I uh, can't wait to uh, to dig into this a little bit more and hear about some of the case studies. Thank you, guys. Speak soon. Cheers, both. Thank you. Thanks very much. So we've just heard from two leading experts on how our social relationships impact our decisions around domestic energy retrofit, or in other words, how we improve the energy efficiency of our homes. But how does this work in practice and what examples can we point to in the real world? Well, to offer some insights, we'll speak with three researchers from the same UK Energy Research Centre project who led on three different case studies that covered Glasgow, Brighton and Otley, just outside of Leeds, west of Yorkshire. So first up, we're going to hear from Dr. Ian Cairns, a lecturer with me at the Hunter Centre for Entrepreneurship at Strathclyde Business School. Ian is also a member of the same UK Energy Research Centre project on social relations and retrofit, and he is now going to talk about his case study, which he led into the multi-occupancy Victorian tenement housing in the south side of Glasgow. Ian, welcome and hello. How are you? Very well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Could you possibly explain to our listeners what your case study was about and why it was of uh, particular interest to our project around the social relations of retrofit? Yeah, of course. The, the, the case study is of the, of the Cross Hill area in the south side of Glasgow. And we thought that would be interesting for a variety of reasons. Like one, as, you, as you, you mentioned earlier, it's a conservation area. So it has lots of old buildings, mm-hmm. um, some of which are uh, they're, they're quite difficult to, to, to heat. Um, so there was potentially something interesting there to, to look at. Uh, they're flats. Mm-hmm. These, these, these tenements are old sandstone buildings. They're three or four storeys high. And they have maybe like five to eight kind of flats up them, depending on how, how large they are. And uh, we, we were quite interested in how um, the, the, the owners in these properties like uh, reached agreement with each other. Yeah. Um, I was also, we're also interested because they're mixed tenure. While most residents are owner-occupiers, there's also private rented properties there as well. So that, that added another sort of dynamic to, to, to the situation. And also they have varied, it's quite varied income in the tenement. So, so that means that there's all sorts of negotiations that have to take place there about how we can pay for the interventions in the, in the communal areas. So we've got a very busy, very densely populated um, building numerous homes within the same house, if, if you will. And so there's lots of social relations here to unpick, not just social relations between the occupants of the building, but between the occupants of the building and, say, the factor, or the, as not a common word, uh, beyond Scotland, I might say, but um, the, the manager responsible for the building. So I just wonder if you might talk a little bit about the key findings from the case study. What did you uncover and what maybe in particular was surprising about it? Yeah, I mean, first of all, something that wasn't maybe that surprising was that, um, uh, you know, retrofit in flats involves a lot more relational work to, to, to reach agreement between multiple owners. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very difficult. But on the other hand, what we find is that there's uh, there's tremendous kind of relational resources there. So people support each other. They work 
work together and they, 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 they can draw on a broader range of, uh, of networks and connections in order to, to get things done and mm. to, to, to learn. But yes, definitely property managers was uh, one thing that came up as being really, really, really important. They, they do a lot of relational work. They try and organise people in uh, that live uh, up the stairwell in the building. But we also find that, you know, because they're just tasked with, with, with maintenance, yeah. It means that they, they don't really have a energy efficiency role. And we also found that because they're just helping to make things just tick away in the background, yeah. um, you know, and maintaining the buildings, it, it means that it kind of undermines the kind of grassroots um, activism, if, if you yeah. will. That, that so, so they don't necessarily have a responsibility for capital expenditure to, to add something. It's more about maintaining the status quo. Exactly. So, um, uh, yeah, and, and sim simply because they're there, it, it often means that people don't engage with each other in a way that they otherwise would in order to actually achieve things like, together. So, so we have this quite busy space. We don't necessarily have the jurisdiction or the responsibilities around making those strategic interventions in retrofit. So... So what were the key takeaways and implications? What, what are you now sort of reaching out um, to Glasgow City Council, Scottish Government, also other rental or uh, other agencies? What are you suggesting we should be doing differently? Well, one thing that came from this was that, I mean, there's tremendous potential if we could leverage the, uh, the kind of relational role of property managers to, to, to drive this forward. But a real issue is that they're not trusted um, parties, people, lots of people have problems with their managers. They're, they're, they're accused of underperformance and uh, overpricing. So, so something there has to help. I think I think it was in 2014 that there was uh, there was a, some legislation that went in to try and regulate property managers a little bit better. But I think that that has to be built upon. I think also property managers, because they're not familiar with energy efficiency space, that some kind of support has to be provided for them so that they, they, they can learn and so that they can know a lot a lot more about how to, to go about um, uh, helping um, residents with retrofit. And a final word there maybe on residents associations, something that you and I have spoken about a bit around actually bringing those residents together. Um, is, is, was something a key finding? Well, 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 it's absolutely the case that, um, I mean, it's, it's Scotland, well, the UK is, is, is more broadly, is very unusual in not having compulsory owners associations and, and to, to assist with that kind of community sort of activism, allowing a sort of bottom-up approach to retrofit. I think it would be enormously beneficial if we we weren't an outlier and we, and we did have um, owners associations to, to drive this forward. Brilliant. Ian, thank you so much. And uh, yeah, we look forward to having you back again soon. Thank you very much for having me. A fascinating insight from Ian there into the dynamic between tenement householders in these multi-occupancy buildings and also those responsible for managing their properties, uh, such as the factors. But next up, we hear from Julia Minini from the University of Sussex. Julia's case study examined the case of Brighton with a specific focus on rental housing in a student area and their landlords. Hello and welcome, Julia. Hi, hello. Thank you. Hi, lovely to have you aboard. So, um, first and foremost, what was your case study of and what was your rationale for choosing it? 
So here in Sussex, we are looking at the private rented sector. So the challenges uh, of retrofitting within the private rented sector and, you know, the decision making process of landlords. Uh, and this is also because uh, it's something that hasn't been researched as much. Um, also, we are looking at Brighton because uh, of specific challenges. So first of all, is the issue that uh, they have uh, in Brighton um, a lot of regions see Victorian and uh, Edwardian building uh, buildings so the stock is quite old so there are some challenges in terms of retrofitting all buildings and also because uh, most of uh, these buildings are also in uh, uh, conservation areas so uh, they are uh, listed buildings. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously with landlords and tenants, you have this split incentive dilemma where if the landlord invests, it's not necessarily the landlord who benefits, particularly if the tenant is paying. Um, so we have this situation. Also, you know, just to paint a picture for Brian, very, very vibrant, dynamic student community. Lots of people, I guess, piling into the, the same houses and, and enjoying their, their lives. Um, what was really the key findings from this study, like digging into this dynamic between uh, student tenants and the landlords? Well, yes. So uh, what we found is that uh, definitely family, friends, uh, tradespeople uh, and retrofit companies and cooperative and the relationship with the, the local authorities uh, and lately agency, um, which are the key actors operating in the area regarding um, the uh, private rental sector uh, are essential in, in this uh, retrofit uh, process and the decision making process for the landlords. And, you know, contrary to other studies that focused on this perspective, uh, we can say that the relationship with tradespeople it was something that uh, really played uh, a key role in uh, pushing for uh, uh, adopting retrofit options um, for, uh, for the landlords. So, so when you say tradespeople, you're talking about the individuals who are maybe starting to prepare these older properties for students before they, they maybe sign their tenancy? Sure. So are those that work within the sector, uh, like such as plumbers or builders and so on, that work within the sector and they do, um, yeah, they do uh, provide retrofit options basically for, uh, for landlords. So why were they providing, why would a plumber or electrician or another tradesman or tradesperson provide this energy efficiency advice. I mean, they're not living in the house. They're, you know, sure, what, what yes. would be the, the reason for that? Yes. So um, what we found is that actually our sample of landlords, uh, perhaps because there were landlords uh, that belonged to the uh, Sud the Sussex Student Lettel Agency, which is basically uh, an agency that works specifically with students uh, and was set up within the University of Sussex, was considered perhaps a good uh, sample of like a sample of good landlords that they were actually interested in the well-being of, of uh, their tenants. So uh, as you were mentioning before, there is always this dilemma of the split in incentives. So usually landlords are not really keen on improving their properties because they don't see and they don't benefit directly uh, from, you know, improvement within the household. Uh, however, in this case, we found that actually they did uh, care for, for their tenants and specifically they cared for their well-being and comfort. Okay, sounds like the ideal landlord in that regard. And what I guess are the key takeaways? What are the implications of your findings? You know, we've got a set of manifestos that are being prepared. You know, today I guess for 
a forthcoming general election. What what would be your message to them? Sure. So I think something that's really important, perhaps it was missing in, in policies, this uh, emphasis on place and looking at what are the assets, uh, the specific geographical issues and building, uh, building related issues that uh, are present in different localities, in different places, and how these actually can support, so can provide opportunities, or otherwise they can constrain uh, the energy efficiency uh, process uh, at home. So um, I think that's, uh, that's really important, together with, of course, the relations of, uh, and the networks that landlords have to uh, improve uh, their properties. Excellent. Thank you, Julia, and thank you for coming along. Thank you. So fascinating there to get a sense of how the energy efficiency decision-making of the rental sector, especially one targeting students, is shaped by our social relations. In this regard, the relations between students and the landlord, but also the landlord and these other parties, whether these be tradesmen or or, or the university. So um, now we move on to Passage New, our final case study. We explore the case of Otley, a small and historic market mill town outside of Leeds, West Yorkshire, and with a very high concentration of old high-density housing. How are social relations impacting householders' decision about energy retrofit here? So to get a sense of this, we speak with Ruth Bookbinder from the University of Leeds to learn more. Hello and welcome, Ruth. Hi, yeah, thanks for having me. Excellent. So this is a case study close to my heart. I did my PhD in Leeds. Often of a weekend, we would get out of the city, head towards Wharfdale, and one of the first stops on the road that we would sort of Decamp would be Otley, beautiful market town, right on the wharf there, gorgeous river. Um, I just wonder if you could paint a, a picture of this case study. You know, what, what is Otley like? Why did you choose this case study? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, we wanted to choose somewhere that was a bit outside the city centre, not actually fully within it, looking at very specific types of buildings, as you said, sort of older buildings needing you know, much like where most of the housing stock in the UK, they need specific types of work. They're quite hard to target for these more intensive retrofits. Um, But also we were looking at the sort of owner occupiers who are in that able to pay sector. These are people who um, are, and that's obviously very broad and that we can sort of argue about what able to pay means, particularly in the context of a cost of living crisis. but these are people who are theoretically should be the ones engaging with the incentives to get retrofit done in their house, um, but aren't doing it. So we were looking at people who had self-identified as getting extensive renovation or doing extensive renovations on their work because we wanted to find the people who were spending money to upgrade their house, but maybe weren't necessarily taking that step to go into those full energy orientated retrofits. Okay. So what was particularly interesting about your case you know what were the findings that have fallen out of it anything that particularly surprised you yeah so i think you know like all the case studies we found that you know social relations played a huge role so for instance relations with family and friends that played an important role in uh when and how people would uh, when and the sort of types of work that people would get choose to do on their homes so, you know it's maybe it's about creating a more open living space to sort of accommodate your family and social life maybe it's making sure that your boiler is actually and your is actually just able to cope with having family visiting. So, you know, the types of work when people were deciding to get work um, done, you know, wanting to avoid working with young children in the house for the extra disruption, like that was really important. And then, you know, obviously the relations around trust, trust with uh, tradespeople being very important. I think, you know, 
that sort of anxiety of having people working in your house and living space is something that a lot of people can relate to. And also that's sort of linked to relations with identity, particularly for women, you know, single women and their interactions with trade people were often quite, you know, sort of fraught or tense situations. Um, and obviously that's something that needs, you know, more investigation in terms of the retrofit side, like particularly how far identity might turn people off and fear of those relations might turn people off getting work done. Um, but it was interesting to see how that played out in the context of getting work done for their homes. And then perhaps one of the most striking findings we had, in particularly in relation for retrofit policy, was that a really deep aversion to getting debt, uh, incurring any debt to get work done in their house. People didn't want to seek loans. So it was very much language about, you know, the proper way to do this is through savings, or maybe you have inheritance, or you earn this. You don't do work done on your home through a loan. It's something extra. Um, you know, a couple interviewers, uh, interviewees rather refer to it as like debt as being the heaviest thing you can hang around your neck. So a really strong aversion to taking out extra funds. Yeah, which is interesting given that, you know, almost, well, not almost all uh, owner occupiers, but but certainly the majority have mortgages. Yeah. So, you know, and that is the heaviest debt to hang around your neck. So, uh, you know, these whether it's layers of debt or I remember us talking previously when we were looking through the, the findings was people would compartmentalize different types of money for different things. And some people would associate it being okay to attach debt to certain things like owning a house. But in what you're saying is not necessarily improving the energy efficiency of the house. So, I guess now I'm thinking implications for this. As I mentioned to Julie before, we've got manifestos being, you know, developed left, right and centre by different parties. What do we do with these findings? You've you've mentioned uh, a few, uh, aversion or um, acceptance of debt. Also these kind of life junctures where people feel it's, it's most appropriate to make these changes, but also people's willingness to engage with certain social relations given their own self-identity and others. So, so what do we do with this, Ruth? How do we package this? Yeah, I, mean, I think in terms of the sort of question around debt and financial packages, that's a huge thing for government policies, right? Because it means we really have to step away from this tendency to view homeowners as these rational actors that are just waiting for the right financial package to come along and then they're going to do the work as soon as they find the right financial package, because that's obviously not the case. So there has to be sort of an understanding that maybe catching people at the right time, like whether or not that's, you know, when they're looking to under... Uh, undertake significant renovations in their house maybe that's when you kind of get in and say like okay while you're under doing this disruption is this when you also want to be doing this retrofit works and you know yeah add it just you know feeding into disruption as opposed to adding new disruption to it um and then i think also it's you know about trying to design financial incentives in a way that you know isn't just about like this right financial package and isn't about framing this as like a loan and you know i think recognizing that people might be a bit skeptical that these packages are going to deliver the savings that they're supposed to, particularly with rising energy um, energy costs. You know, this maybe changing the tone of that debate and changing the normative reason why you do it is important. And maybe if we can finish just on your point about people's willingness to engage in that social relational work, that, that building of relationships. You mentioned um, your example was for instance, a, a woman um, looking to bring in tradesmen into a into a home. This feels really important. If people aren't don't feel safe and willing to, to build these relationships, then how do you get somebody around to retrofit your home? Is there any any insights you have there um, that that example or others? Yeah, absolutely. I think you know something that's important to look at is 
you know, framing this as work, this is labor, this takes time to build trust, to find the people to do it. Um, you know, so try, that's where I think, you know, the sort of local one-stop shop is actually a really interesting idea because it really like reduces the amount of sort of social labor, social work that people have to do to seek out the trades, to seek out those like right grants or packages or policies for them. Um, and, you know, it sort of speaks to something we found, which is that homeowners really liked having a sort of almost shop front that they could go to. They liked knowing that there was like a physical space that they could approach if they had an issue, if they have a question. So, yeah, I think, you know, trying to, you know, sort of lessen that burden on homeowners to find all the information themselves, I think is, you know, something that's quite important to take or take into account going forward. Very important, Ruth. Thank you so much. So excellent to hear there from Ruth about this case study from Otley, which I think unveils a whole set of different insights. Um, and special thanks really to all of our guests there about how our social networks, our social relationships are shaping our decisions to improve the energy efficiency of our homes. Turns out it isn't just as simple as financial decision making based on spreadsheets and return of interest and re- uh, rates of return. Um, and this isn't surprising. We are human after all. So thank you to our guests. You've been listening to Local Zero. A big thank you to all of our guests for this episode. And if you're enjoying Local Zero, make sure you do subscribe to the pod. Search Local Zero wherever you get your podcasts and click subscribe. And please, please do leave us a review. This helps us climb the charts and drive the local energy revolution. And if you haven't already, find and follow us on Twitter at Local Zero Pod to get involved with the discussions there. And email us at localzeropod at gmail.com if you want to share some longer thoughts. But for now, thank you and goodbye. Produced by Bespoken Media.